you were talking about knowing Star Trek in the first ten minutes. That's uh, right. My friend actually told me that they knew someone who took every episode of Star Trek Next Generation and cut them into three segments. <laughs> and they had a, like a program that would course. just shuffle them. Oh. And so the thing is, if you look at it, they wrote the intros in such a way that they just kind of like lead up to a point and then like the credits would roll oh. and then you'd have the inciting incident and then you'd have like the conclusion. <laughs> and so like you could just mix and match because each segment was the same time length. So you could yeah. just shuffle oh. them. Oh, because they had to have commercial Such breaks. Right? Formulaic <laughs> writing. I loved it. I loved uh, all right, so... Uh, Speaking of writing that is not formulaic... <laughs> <laughs> nice segue, Jonathan. <laughs> I try. the trade waiters today's episode uh what is today's episode gonna be uh we read two books this episode two whole books wendy and wendy's revenge by walter scholars all right and do you have a character revealing question for us yes i do character revealing question who are you and if you had a solo gallery show where you could do absolutely anything you wanted what would you do are we allowed to do comics? You are allowed to do literally anything. <laughs> okay. What would your solo gallery show be? All right. Well, I've already started talking, so I guess I have to start now. Uh, I'm Jonathan, and, well, I only know how to do one thing, so I guess I'm going to do comics. <laughs> uh, I took, uh, I did visual arts in university for four years, uh, and I have a degree in that, and then I stopped painting and printmaking forever. And I've only done comics since then. So that's all I've got to show. Uh, I'm Jam, and what sprung to mind was probably related to the favorite gallery opening that I've ever been to. So there was a exhibition at the Vancouver Art Gallery probably oh, probably close to ten years ago ten years ago now called Massive Change. And it was centered very clearly on how urbanization is affecting the world, how climate change is affecting the world. And there was one section of that museum that I can't remember very clearly, except for the fact that it was using a 3D interactive exhibit to demonstrate a data trend. So it was some trend about like how population was rising or how urbanization was happening. And then it was represented in physical space with these interactive objects. And that really interested me. And so in this hypothetical world where I'm given a whole gallery space, let's say hypothetically they also have a lot of time to dedicate to filling that gallery space, and I would like to create an interactive exhibit with data and tech and some kind of mm. stuff. It's a much better answer than I have. Yeah, in your face, Jamie. <laughs> Great. I'm Jeff Ellis, and currently I'm still mostly making comics, but I keep telling myself I should paint some more. But uh, actually, it's funny when you ask if I had a gallery to myself, I've actually had a concept in my head that I just don't think I could ever execute. But like pie in the sky, if I could do like a gallery exhibit, I had this idea about taking famous Vancouver landmarks and then extrapolating 
the giant condo tower that would sit at the location that that famous <laughs> landmark currently is. And so, like, the gallery would just be all of these giant condo tower, like, sales brochures talking about the history of whatever it was that used to be there that got destroyed. And it would be, like, things like the city hall would get torn down and, like, the, the mayor would just rent out, like, the strata office for, like, mayoral council meetings and, like, yeah, just every famous landmark you could imagine. Stanley Park, like, everything would just get torn down and turned into a condo. And they would just all be, like, done in this real, like, happy, like, condo sales brochure style, like, on every wall. So anyone who's listening, if you've got the time to make that happen, do it. Steal that idea from me, because <laughs> I think someone should make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, it's such a good question, but I'm at a total loss. <laughs> I, I don't know what I would do. Do, do video game galleries would that be totally whatever you want to do you can do anything oh my gosh um so in vancouver there's this um amazing like game arcade gallery called heart projector and it's some of the best times i've ever had here like it's it's like people who made all of these indie games um and you get to basically just walk around as if it were a gallery and play the games and it's just such a cool time so something interactive would be really fun i would love to you know incorporate comics as well because that's like my medium but yeah, something like that, you know? I don't know. I don't have a vague idea. <laughs> Did cool. you give an answer? Uh, I can. Um, oh, you got it. You uh, have to. <laughs> yeah, I'm Kay Gross, and uh, I have I think about this a lot, and I have a serious answer and a less serious answer. The less serious answer is I would love to do renderings of, like, screenshots from Netflix that I've taken and forgotten why I've taken them, because <laughs> um, it's just a folder on my desktop where I'm like, these are... I don't know why these are here, but they were important for like half a second once. And then my more serious answer is I would one day love to have the time and the resources to expand my textile practice. If I had a gallery space, I'd love to fill it with like tapestries and quilting and like embroidery, um, building off of a theme of a triptych I did a couple of years ago. That's like grotesque self-portraits transforming from one piece to the next, all kind of linked. Yeah, one day. One day, when I marry Rich. Um, <laughs> Who's Rich? No one in comics. <laughs> I really love your portraiture, by the way. Like, your self-portraits. Oh, thank yeah, you. it's awesome. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, if you haven't read this book, and maybe you should, because maybe you'll understand why we're talking about gallery shows. Wendy is about... And Wendy's a Revenge are sort of about this... Um, character named Wendy sort of I, it's kind of easy and hard to explain it's sort of that post art school trying to figure out how to be an artist in that space and kind of I think critiquing um, a lot of the bullshit that happens in that because there's a lot of like facades and posturing and s stuff that goes on you just scrambling to try and make it work um and she's kind of a train wreck but aren't we all uh <laughs> yeah and i mean through it, it it explores like she does some artist residencies and stuff um but i'll talk a little bit about the author i guess too um walter i'm gonna mispronounce this but kaharotan scott it's a canadian mohawk cartoonist born in 85 he has a fine art practice that's sort of came before comics and his comics and continues to exist 
you know, uh, outside of Wendy and also linked to Wendy in many ways. Um, he has painting, like these sort of drawing-ish paintings and also sculptural work. And he was born in Kanawake, which I believe is in Ontario. Yeah, uh, Kanawake. Kan- Kanawake, thank you. It's in Quebec. Yes, okay. Right next to Montreal. I yes. had to look it up, but yeah. Um, yes, I was looking it up and then, like, got into the, like, hole where you're, like, reading articles. Yeah, yeah. Article. He graduated from Concordia in 2009. He was the AGO's artist-in-residence um, in late 2016. This comic was serialized on Hazlitt, and it is published by Fayama Press. The first book, Wendy, came out in 2014, and then Wendy's Revenge just came out. It came out in the end of 2016. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Wendy. Obviously, I really like this series of comics. I think they're really interesting, but I'd be interested to hear what the rest of you think. All right. Well, it seems to be my role to be the first to speak. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, no. I uh, originally was a little put off at the start just with like the first couple pages that were just like these really rough like napkin sketches. I was like, oh man, is this just going to be like a zine for... 200 pages and then it sort of slowly really started to come together and I actually found like successively with each chapter I got more and more invested in in this in the story of Wendy and I think just like some of the initial like one page gags at the beginning I was a little like oh this seems like kind of one note but then yeah like as it really started to build a cast of characters and really follow like her arc like her going on this residency and meeting new friends and then like moving to Vancouver and like if you want me to like your story just have your character move to Vancouver halfway through um <laughs> no no but uh like yeah I just actually found that um comparatively volume two I think was head and shoulders above volume one I really enjoyed volume two and uh I don't know it it's like very uh, it's very dark but I like dark so yeah I got into this I and I, it's funny that I didn't pick up on this until halfway through, but I listened to a podcast where uh, they did a spotlight on Walter Scott and Wendy, and I realized I listened to this podcast and went, I should look up this comic, and then I didn't. And then he recommended it, and now I finally read Wendy, and uh, I went back and re-listened to the podcast. And what was the podcast? It is The Imposter, uh, which is the arts and culture podcast by uh, Canada Land, and specifically it's uh, episode 10 and it's definitely worth a listen because it gives you a lot of extra insights into, I think, where Walter Scott's head was at when he came up with Wendy and some really interesting quirks about him as an artist when he's talking about uh, some of the choices he made and how he represented Wendy, uh, particularly in Volume 2. Uh, no, it's 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 uh, funny that you say that uh, the first like little bit looks like it was drawn on a napkin. That's like literally the first Wendy strip was drawn on a napkin <laughs> as uh, sort of a bit of a self-portrait, kind of drawing an alter ego. And then from reading interviews with um, Scott, it seems like it sort of like went from there and like grew into this much more complex thing as he kept going back to this Wendy character and sort of like not just trying to make him and his friends laugh, but trying to do something else with it mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Apparently in Volume 2, when she goes to Japan, that was all originally printed in Japan for, like, a special, like, event or Yeah, it was like a one-off. Yeah, it was a one-off mini-comic made just for Japan. And in the podcast, he was saying that his original intention was to never have that translated into English and let it exist only as 
something for Japanese people. And then he changed his mind. <laughs> and that just seems like his kind of modus operandi is like, yes, this, but actually I'm going to, nah, never mind. We'll just go back and do that as well. <laughs> I, I love this series. Like, I'm obsessed with it. I think I read it. I, I don't know, I countless times, like four times, like just over and over again rereading it. Um, it's probably, for me, the most deceptive comic I've ever encountered. I wasn't a fan at first. when I Before I'd read it, before I started to understand what it was about, um, I had some concerns about it. And then once I got into it, like I realized like how compassionate and complex of a story it is. Um, and learning a bit about a little bit about Walter Scott's background. And I also started talking to people, like, in the community, like, some people, comic shops, being like, well, what do you think of this? What do you think this means? Um, and getting more perspectives. And I think it's, like, a really complex piece. And I'm really excited to talk about it. And here's some other opinions as well. I'm glad that uh, Kathleen got us to read two books because I enjoyed the second book much more than the first book. And I think I just had a lot of trouble relating to the character in the first book. Like, all the stuff about, like, going to parties and drinking and doing drugs and all that kind of stuff. Like, that is too far outside my life experience. I can't relate to any of that. So, uh, like, it's, I mean, it's a very well-made book, but it just, I couldn't couldn't latch onto it. But the second volume, well, there was a lot more stuff about, like, how to make art and how to exist in a world where other people are making art and, like, moving to other continents and that kind of thing and sort of identity stuff. And I was like, okay... Now I'm on board. I want to read this. I want to know what's happening. And also, the, the characters, I think, were a lot more complicated in the second volume. Yeah, absolutely. But I actually didn't... Um, I, surprise, surprise. I didn't do a lot of research on Walter Scott. Um, I just was mostly focused on the book. So I, I, was, I didn't know he was uh, Aboriginal. And then that actually explains, in the podcast, he was talking about how he's really proud that he brought Winona into the story during the artist residency. And he made a comment that, like, when you talk about Aboriginal, like, the walls go up. And so I was really proud that I was able to sort of sneak her in under people's radar. So, like, I used Wendy to get everyone comfortable, and then Winona <laughs> comes in, and now you have to deal with Winona. Uh, which I will say, Winona, really good character. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to know more about Winona, and I was really pleased that Winona got her own chapter in Volume 2. <laughs> yeah, I really liked that chapter with Winona. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so this is a book that had to win me over. It, it did, uh, eventually. <laughs> uh, but it is, as I, I mentioned in the previous podcast, it is a book that I had to be in the right mood to read. Uh, I ended up opening it up and reading the first two and then closing it and being like, you know what? I am not in the space to read this right now. Because it seemed from the first two pages that it was going to be a takedown of a ditz. That's what I thought this book was going to be, based on the first two pages. And it definitely is not a takedown in the dits, and I am happy that that is the case, but I was not emotionally prepared to brace myself for that being the case. So I was really happy in the end to have it a much more multi-dimensional character. I agree with you, Jess, that it is a very compassionate portrayal of the character. I like how many other interesting characters are, are in this. I really like Winona. Uh, and I feel, at the end of the day, that it is an authentic portrayal of a certain type of person and a certain type of scene. I feel like that is that is worth reading, and uh, I'm glad I read it. At the end of the day, though, I'm not sure it was for me. Like, I, I kind of agree with what you said, John, where it's like, it's just so far outside my experience that I can't relate to it. Like, it's just, yeah. I, I can't relate with the art world, I think, <laughs> and that aspect. So it was a critique of something that I fundamentally just do not care about. 
Well, you also <laughs> haven't been to art school. Like, at least I no, can I recognize I things I have sort of seen the periphery of in art school, but haven't actually done myself. Yeah, my mother went to art school, though. Okay. Like, I have some peripheral exposure to art. Mm-hmm. I have, like, a lot of artists in my family, and it's just, don't care. <laughs> don't care. Can't care. Sorry. Yeah. For, like, I can't care. For me, if you if you look up uh, the word square in the dictionary, it will say a four-sided shape with uh, right angles and all sides equal, and it has a picture of my face. So, <laughs> that is the context I am coming from when I'm reading this book. Yeah, no, it's funny, because, like, the partying scenes, I could really do more. Okay. Like, it's like, I've been grown up in Montreal, it's like that type of scene and that type of grittiness I thought was really authentic. Uh, and it was in the art school stuff. Like, what, what really struck me as I was reflecting on this book was we never see Wendy's art. Yeah, I thought mm-hmm. it was really interesting, actually. I think that was a good approach, because as soon as we know what her art looks like, then we're going to start making, like, drawing conclusions about its quality or whatever, where, like, I think the story is from her point of view, and she doesn't necessarily have a good opinion of her own art, and so we can only see it through her eyes now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in, in, and I mean, that's fine. I don't necessarily think that we need to see her art in the sense of, like, aesthetically, but it was very much not about her art. Mm. It was about, she's created her whole life to be structured around art, supposedly, and yet everything was about, as you said, posturing, like, impressing other people and, you know, getting these grants and kind of the, the business of the of running the art world, and it just seemed very superficial uh, to me, and, and at the end of the day, like my conclusion was, wow, the art world, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's fine, you know, it it is what it is. But that was my that was my stance on this book. I think I think in some ways, then I think Walter Scott would probably say he was successful. Yeah, I made the art world look terrible. Yeah. mission accomplished. Yes. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, everything in here is completely believable. Like I could, he's obviously experienced uh, a lot of this himself and has just fictionalized it. So, uh, I was I was reading an interview. I can't remember which which if it was the TCJ one or the Vice one, where he was saying that um, sometimes he would get in like risky situations where he'd be like, hmm, "This will be good for Wendy later." <laughs> <laughs> he was telling a story about like what wound up being handcuffed by the police and that like isn't a Wendy bit. And he was like, yeah, that came out in Wendy later. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I feel like it probably really resonates with me as a work, because I'm, like, freshly out of art school and trying to make some things happen. And it's just, art school was a weird place and a weird space, and there's sort of uh, a lot of bizarre ways of thinking um, <laughs> and things to sort of, like, get really caught up in and have that be your whole reality. Yeah, what did you guys think about, like, sort of the style of writing? Because it's it's a very, like, shorthand style of writing. Like, there's lots of sort of, like, what I and people of my generation would, like, use as shorthand in typing, you know, and, like, IMing and stuff. And, like, you know, like, I flip through a page, two page where thanks is spelled with an X on the end, or she says, like, yeah, a lot, like, Y-A, and, you know, people say lol um, out loud. I say that out loud. Um, I know, so which all don't admit to that. People um, that aren't squares don't say lol out loud. Yeah, and, like, OMG uh, and stuff, and, at, like, how, I don't know, how did that read for you? Did you like that? Yeah, uh, I actually did like that, that part of it. Uh, I thought it was a... Uh, let's say an accurate transcription, uh, where 
the way the characters were speaking, like I could hear it very clearly in my head, and I, I thought it spoke, as I said, authentic to a certain type of person. Yeah, yeah, and there were only a few points where I couldn't understand the the text as written, uh, but that still felt authentic. It's like yeah. if these characters were in real life speaking to each other, there would be things that I wouldn't understand. So. I, I think there was, I mean, I don't know, I feel like there was even some panels where it was sort of, like, not important that you'd be able to read all of that panel. Mm. So it wasn't even well-lettered because it didn't matter what was being said. Normally, I think something like that would distract for, for me a lot, but I definitely think that this, yeah, it fed into the atmosphere. Like, it, it's about these young people, and it just, the, the way it was using that sort of text-speak, I guess I'll say, is it then felt appropriate to the generation of people that it was addressing, and I would, I was actually going to say, like, I mean, I've also been to art school, but I, I actually felt like even if you hadn't been to art school, I felt like this touched on just kind of being in your 20s and still being a mess and trying to figure things out and feeling like you were a failure and that there was some kind of weird bar you had to get to and being upset that you weren't there and... You know, I just think that this was just such a great depiction of, like, that time in your life where you're trying to figure out how to be an adult, right? And it's, I think everyone kind of has that period, and hopefully by the time you get to your 30s, you sort of figured some of that out or got past some of that. But I just think, like, this was a good uh, a good way of depicting that that sort of, like, really early 20s where you're just really trying to figure things out. It's like your first time living alone. You're away from your parents. You can buy alcohol. And, you know, it's just like a lot of people are kind of a hot mess at that time period in their life, you know. And I think that that's, I think this is just like a good depiction of that. In the interview with, with Walter Scott, he was saying that half the people ask him, are you Wendy? And the other half are like, Oh man, I'm Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> it could be both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with like a lot of the comments that have been said just previously, and like with it, it being kind of a portrayal of just somebody who's young and like trying to figure themselves out. Because um, I'm about like her age in the story, but my life is really not similar to hers. Like the art school I'm at is nothing like this. It's it's very like practical and design focused it's not a fine arts school um not to say that fine arts school is always like wendy or anything like that um, just a little bit at least yeah a little, a little bit, bit. Wendy in any art fine arts school yeah, yeah. um you know <laughs> and uh you know i wasn't really part of the hardcore party scene but what really resonated with me was um i i think the way he portrays authenticity in speech like mm. when the characters are saying something that's inauthentic they get their eyes just turn into these black circles and their mouths become this plain black circle and there's like mm. this hollowness in mm. their speech um i feel like um the text speech was also used more when the characters were having a rough time or being inauthentic because there's this moment in the second book if you don't mind me reading a quick quote that just is is so clear and vivid because there's no like shorthand or text speech mm. in it um and it's when i can't remember his name the older author says um about vancouver i believe Wendy, this city can feel a bit standoffish and cold at times. Where you expect friendship, you may find fear. But in places where you expect indifference, you can find generosity. And it just rang so true because he was mm. using this um, contrasting kinds of language 
and uh, speech bubble even and expression and this just felt very real so mm -hmm. i loved so I... many aspects of this artistically and content wise yeah 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 i should have remembered his name because i actually really enjoyed that character a lot uh simply because you have this older male character and wendy is like a fan of his writing and basically is like, yeah, I could date a 40-year-old. And you're like, oh, Wendy, don't. And then he's totally like, no, Wendy, you need to go home. And I'm like, good for you, sir. Like, thank you for not letting this story get so creepy. Like, <laughs> He's like, I think it's time for you to call a cab. <laughs> All the characters felt so real. Yeah. You know, it was... It was oh, yeah. The was characters feel them. very real. Um, yeah. and even even Screamo, Screamo feels, real. Reminded, <laughs> feels, feels real. Screamo reminded me of someone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Someone you can't mention on air? Uh, I, that would be rude. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, no, but Screamo feels like there are people like that as well. Yeah. So it's just like everyone feels very real. Yeah, um, no, it, it reminds me like on... Uh, a very not not quite to the same degree, but uh, if you've watched the HBO show Girls, it's like they're the mm. characters are very very extreme in that show, and it's like I don't know any people like this personally, but I know there are people like this out there. Rush <laughs> <laughs> with them. Yes, it's like I these people exist, and this is an accurate portrayal of that type of person, and it's but it's not connected to my experience. Yeah, so I, I agree that the uh, portrayals are very authentic. Yeah, I, I really like a lot of the body language in this book as well. Like, the way people are drawn, like, just said, for the, like, hollow eye mask faces. Like, it's so simple, and yet it is, it conveys so much. And, I mean, even that, that there's some, just some really nice moments. Like, there's the scene that Jess was talking about before, um, where Wendy is talking to the older writer. She does this thing where she takes down her hair and then puts it back up, and that just felt, like, really, like really real to like sort of nervous and and like weird behavior when you have long hair and you do that and you're like mm. uncomfortable you take it down and put it back up and i just thought that was such a nice sequence yeah oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it was i was surprised that it was so detailed in that way you can tell that walter is a very very keen observer of human behavior for a man to write a someone with that much detail in their expression and mannerisms yeah throughout is even throughout book one i was I was surprised at some of those gestures that were used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, like, personally, um, it's an example of brilliant cartooning, and I think that he has, like, a huge visual vocabulary and symbol language that he uses throughout the series. Because, like, there's the mask face with the dark eyes and mouth, which is great, but there's all these other unique expressions that show up throughout. Yeah, like these, like, bird lips. You know yeah. when people's mouths get beaky? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and you could hear the tone change in the character's voice. Like, you could almost, like, audibly hear it because the expression is so perfect, but I don't know where, like, it, it's coming from. Like, I haven't really seen it before. Um, and I think it's just so expressive. It mm -hmm. reminds me, more than anything else, of Casey Green's work. Yeah, it's a similar kind of elasticity uh, to the expression. The, the one that springs to mind for me is uh, in book two when waiting, Wendy is waiting for a text back. So she's oh. sent a text and she's waiting for a text back and it's just like the dark screen and her eyes are looking at it and then they're like stretching a little bit closer and eventually they like go over the lip of the side <laughs> of the phone and yeah. she's like looking for the text. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked that. Uh, yeah. And there are some standout examples like that in the book. Yeah, like yeah. every line here is intentional. And because it's such a cartoony style, every line is also fluid. You can put that line wherever it needs to go to get across 
the sort of the emotions that these characters are feeling. Yeah, no, the, it's funny, uh, going into this podcast, I said to Kathleen that the, the, the singular factor that ties our last book with this book is just the extreme expressions. These are both books <laughs> with just people having extreme expressions. <laughs> Very different, though. Yes. Uh, just, then there's no nothing else the same yeah. <laughs> after that. <laughs> Uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, the chapter with Monona and like art on the res? I thought that was mm-hmm. probably the most the most interesting part of the book for me. Mm-hmm. How it was such a different experience with how that community related to art and bringing in like the native, like the beadwork, uh, and trying to integrate that with Winona's you know, broader art experience and sort of bringing yeah. art in and then bringing the <laughs> the community's art out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that part, yeah. as, I, as I mentioned, was probably my favorite oh, yeah. chapter in the book. I also found it just interesting that in a book that could essentially have been printed black and white, that that chapter had the color in the space outside the panels, seemingly for no reason. but <laughs> Just because. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's just because. Yeah, no, I, I don't have any. I don't know that I have any um, or was that the comments or on that chapter, but yeah, it felt like uh, really authentic and also really interesting because, again, this is uh, another world that I don't have a really strong connection to. So I don't. I've never been in any of these situations, but it's still like, okay, this is this is something I want to know about. Yeah. So it, it struck me very differently though, because like these scenes, I even though it is very outside my experience, I could relate to these scenes mm. and I could empathize with this. Like situation, whereas the art school stuff, I could I could not. <laughs> I was <laughs> just yeah. like it felt like a total deliberately kept outsider, you know. Yeah, yeah no, I feel the same way, but I'm not sure exactly. I I why. think I think for me, maybe it felt a little bit like trying to share my art with my family who've never been to art school, and it's like they want to be supportive, but they don't quite understand what it is I'm doing. And I sort of felt like maybe that's, in a way, a little bit of Wynona's experience is she's gone to this art school and she has these conceptual ideas and she's coming back to the res and and she's putting her work out and people are like, uh, I don't know, could you just do like a bear and a wolf? Like, those always sell. And they're like, no, I'm trying to do something different here. And they're like, different? I don't, hmm, no one's ever done different before. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I also like all the sort of the little sort of visual cues so that you know where you are like the the dream catcher in the rear view mirror and like I, I spent part of this part of reading this chapter was uh me trying to guess like where is this exactly is this Kanawage? because she speaks her language at some point but of course i don't know mohawk and to know whether this, that's what this is or not in the story it's west coast um is it well, I was trying to figure this out, like because it's not very tied to geography, right? But you had Wendy fly, and right. uh, Winona yeah. drove. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and she, then she meets up with Winona on the res outside of Vancouver. Like Winona yeah. was living in Vancouver, uh, and you're right. She's like, I'm going to live with you now, and Winona, and then Winona says, "Well, I'm going back to the res, so see you later. Good luck in Vancouver." Yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. So she's supposed to be somewhere on the on the west coast. But then she also has like a, an Iroquois mask on her wall. Yeah. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's Iroquois. It's it's unclear. Yeah. It's unclear. Yeah. I think it is and that might not be on meant purpose. to be somewhere specific. Although yeah. the language that's, would be something specific. No, that's true. We Wal- need to find out what language Wal- that Walter is. Walter Scott is just seeing if white people are paying attention. <laughs> Could be. 
It's like, I could just throw any native thing in the background and you guys would just accept it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, like, just on that topic, from what I understand from reading interviews with him, is that I think it's much more of, I think it might be more from, like, this isn't for us as white people. Like, that is, that is not for us. It is created for other Native and First Nations people. So, like, that's probably more where it's coming mm. from. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I enjoy uh, reading, as I enjoy looking over the reader's shoulder. Yes. yes. If that makes yes. sense. Yes, yes. Um, I, I liked that a lot. Yeah. Definitely. That, it's still a, good, still a good chapter. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed Useless Urban Person as well. Useless <laughs> Urban Person? So good. Um, I, I, I enjoyed that chapter a lot more than the Tokyo chapter, um, though I felt like their half-assed translation sort of made me just, like, I don't know, they did, like, the comic and then just, like, translated roughly in the order you're supposed to read them in on the on the subsequent page. I felt like it was, like, a bit of a weird... So you had to, like, look at the art and then read the balloon and then kind of go back to the art. Well, see, uh, I think that also might go back to, you know, how this was just, like, created for a Japanese right. audience as a one-off. It's kind right. of like, that's who the audience is. Right. It's not, like, you necessarily as an oh, English speaker. Yeah. Like, I yes. think that is probably a conscious choice to yeah. make you uncomfortable reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would be my thought. No, no, no. I, yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, I wouldn't I wouldn't call that half-assed. I think it's probably quite calculated. Okay, fair enough. Um, fair enough. I, I would personally say um, I hadn't seen that technique um, for a translation before. So basically, just to describe the book, you have the um, comic on the left with all the Japanese word balloons and text, and on the right you have a plain black page with the white text that if you put it over, if it was a piece of like tracing paper, you could it would line up with the bubbles. Mm. Um, I hadn't seen that technique before, and just like from a craft perspective and an art perspective, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know... If anyone here knows an example where this has been used previously, hmm. no, this is the only time I've seen a yeah. translation done that way. No, I, I've never seen it before. Sorry, I've never seen it before. I didn't enjoy it as a reading experience. It was hard which is to why read. I felt like it was. <laughs> that's why I have a negative response to it. Uh, but I did enjoy seeing the hand lettered Japanese. I almost would have preferred if it had just gone in with the Japanese and just been like, "Well, here it is. Good luck with that. <laughs> like, get your translator out." <laughs> <laughs> Because I would have tried to read some of it, at least. Well, I wouldn't have read any anime <laughs> at all. I would have found one or two kanji I could read. Like they, could have, they could have handled that the way they handled the um, the Aboriginal language. Uh-huh. In, um, That's at the in beginning of that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And which which is not translated. Yeah. yeah. It's not. Which is it's inter- like, an interesting choice. Yeah, and I'm okay with it. Yeah. yeah. Like, as, as Kathleen says, mm-hmm. like, it's not, it's not for us. It's like, I don't... I. I'm happy to just make a, not, not an assumption, but take what I can from context and read what else I can into that page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's completely it's like real life. That's, that's how it would be in real life. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, it was good. One other thing in volume two, if we have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you guys think of the 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 Sandy twist? I was so excited to ask that. I was really hoping we could discuss that because yeah. that part wrecked me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so do you want to do you want to describe to our readers kind of the scenario? Oh no, our listeners, I should say, readers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just so, so please show our show our readers a picture of the panel. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to hold up the book to our readers. Um, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm going to do my best to describe my understanding of it. Um, if anybody else wants to jump in and correct me, that'd be great too. But basically in the second book, there's this sort of interlude or switch where instead of Wendy, it features Sandy, who's this emotionally stable reverse of Wendy. And then she appears later in the book as an actual character who goes to Wendy's gallery. And then yeah. can I reveal yeah. the twist? So meanwhile, um, Sandy shows up at the gallery and then a piece of art goes missing um, and it's presented to the audience as if it was stolen by a random person. But later it's revealed that Wendy is Sandy and basically um, left the piece of art. She stole it herself and she left it under the older writer's bed to like frame him as a thief. Is yeah. that correct? Was, yeah. Like I didn't read that as intentional. I, I read that as like... It... Well... She it's dropped more it. like self-sabotage. Yeah, I, okay. I mean, it was it was intentional if you believe that she could understand that she was Sandy and Wendy at the same time, but I think that it was like Sandy was doing things and Wendy was doing things. The results of that was that this piece of art ended up under that guy's bed, um, but I don't think there was any necessary intent in framing him. It just sort of worked out that way. Yeah, mm. I, I agree with that. I think the taking of the art was intentional as a measure of self-sabotage, whether or not Wendy is aware of that self-sabotage happening at the time. I don't think the planting of it yeah. was deliberate. Okay. It was she, she wasn't in any condition but to do anything intentional that at the time sense. that the art was planted. Mm. I think that's a better <laughs> interpretation than mine, because um, I actually didn't... I'm still processing the work. Um, mm. It really like emotionally affected me, and so I'm I'm not like completely sure. But yeah, I think that makes sense. Like flipping through it again now. One thing that really got me was how hollow Sandy's life seemed. Because like we're reading this work, and like we see Wendy partying, and like we see the hollowness of her life, and maybe we're thinking about like a better reality, or like this is a way not to be. Like, we should be some other way, or work to be something better. And then you see the reversal of it, and you're like, wait, this is inauthentic too. Like, it was really interesting for me. Mm -hmm. For my takeaway. Yeah, I just I, I just love that it's because, um, like, the stealing of Wendy's art is, like, this sort of really important moment in book two. And then I, she goes to a psychic who gives her these vague clues, <laughs> and then that leads her to start making, like, accusation after accusation. I think my favorite is where she goes to like a loud house party and like over the thumping drums of this party, she's trying to shout to the guy next to her how she thinks he stole the art and he's just like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, your art, sure. Okay, what? I don't know. Okay, whatever, man. Bye. Like he doesn't even understand that she's making accusations. <laughs> I mean, it just, you know, it all comes to a boil where, yeah, she goes back to the, the writer's house. She sees the art under the bed. She flips out. Uh, there's all these clues that line up with what the psychic said. And um, and then that's where it's kind of revealed that, like, Wendy was Sandy and Sandy stole the art. And I just, I just love that it's this crazy thing where she's basically got dual personalities. And then she, like, goes home and, like, bleaches her hair again because she's, like, she dyed her hair uh, dark colored when she went to Vancouver. She bleaches her hair back to blonde. And then as her hair turns back to blonde, she looks in the mirror and goes, well, that was weird. <laughs> it's like case closed. <laughs> Multiple personalities done. <laughs> but you know, It's funny because like that, that whole transition uh, from Wendy, the light haired person to like Wendy, the dark haired person uh, reminded me a lot of how I've seen people from the East move West 
and have to go through this very severe adjustment period mm. uh, because the, the the mood of Vancouver is very, very different from uh, where it is back east, the way people relate to each other, the way people communicate. It's very, very different and can be very hard to adjust to. And that's what that portion struck me as. It was that she's coming out of the other side of the adjustment period. It's like, mm. oh, now I know how to be Wendy in Vancouver and not mm. this false version of myself. Hmm. <laughs> can we talk about the heist? The end of the second book? Ooh, yes. that yes. was fun. So good. I you know, like that heist. I, I was, it was funny. I was um, at the beginning of the heist, uh, when she runs into Paloma again, I made a note to myself, like, oh, God, Paloma's the worst. And then <laughs> immediately read this chapter where Paloma completely redeems herself. Mm-hmm. And they team up and, like, take on even worse people. Yeah, yeah. The, the Germans. Well, I like... Even uh, worse? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like Paloma so a lot uh, in this book. Because, like, between uh, Wendy, Winona, and Paloma, we have very strong, varied, and rounded characters. And I think the way that Paloma and Wendy relate to each other in an antagonistic sense is a very authentically feminine way of being an antagonist towards each other. Mm. Uh, and I was really happy to see that result. It's like, hey, why are we fighting each other? <laughs> like, let's fight someone else instead. <laughs> so I, I was very happy to see Paloma redeemed. Mm-hmm. Redeemed. I love it. one point, she becomes, like, a literal snake. Yeah. And, like, slides <laughs> out of a drawer. Yeah. Because yeah. she's, she's sort of drawn as, like, this snake-like character. And then he just goes, like, off the rails with it. I laughed out loud. It was so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's. I think it's funny because like uh, when Paloma was first introduced, uh, it's Wendy's saying, "Oh, I'm going to meet Paloma, my my older friend who's going to like mentor me." You know, she's thirty. She's she's so wise. You know, and I remember thinking, "Oh, good. Like maybe Wendy's got like someone to like help guide her away from her like self destructive alcoholic ways." And then immediately Paloma's like, "I'm going to sabotage you and steal everything from you." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, no, this isn't a good friend at all." Um, and it got worse and worse until the heist, uh, which, yeah, I think that was great. I like the the page where it was the internet reaction to the heist. Uh, <laughs> oh, all the internet stuff was great at the end there. All the different BuzzFeed articles and mm-hmm. like, didn't it end with like a listicle? Like, yeah, here you go. <laughs> Uh, Zebajel says Griller Girls, White Feminism or Radical Indigenous Resistance? Ooh. 2,000 shares. Uh, Bluff Post Art Opinion. It's okay to like the Griller Girls and still find them damaging. Here's why. <laughs> 3D Mag. Spy Core, the new trend inspired by the Griller Girls. Buzzkill. <laughs> WT7? <laughs> Ten reactions after reading the Gorilla Girls manifesto. Number seven is my spirit animal. <laughs> yeah, I, that was just perfect. Perfect. What? What? Uh, should we? Should we let the listeners know what happens in the heist, or we sure. assume they read it? I mean, yeah, I assume they've read it. <laughs> Next, you know what? Read it and find out what happens. In the yeah, heist. the heist is a plus quality material. All right, should we be wrapping up? Sure. Any final thoughts? I enjoyed Wendy. I hope there's a volume three. <laughs> I would recommend this if... I'm not sure who I would recommend this to. I'm sure I would find someone to recommend this to. I wouldn't recommend it to myself, necessarily. But I, it is a very well-made book. And if this is the... If you're really, really into indie comics, let's say, then read this. Yeah, I I will second that statement. Uh, I think it was a book that did win me over. It was well-executed and a solid book, but it is fundamentally not a book for me. 
Uh, and so for that reason, it's like, I'm not sure I can recommend it to others who have been through our school, I think would be the key audience uh, for this book and would find the most enjoyment out of it. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I think I, I would recommend this to anybody in art school, um, even if it's not the kind of school Wendy might have gone to, if it's not a fine art school, anybody in art school. And, you know, it really resonated with me, so I'd even say anybody in their 20s to 30s it could be really good. Or anybody who's in Vancouver, too, because, like, the Vancouver section is so funny, like, how everyone keeps saying, like, oh, I think I'm getting a cold, like, that <laughs> line you've heard so many times, right? So it's, it's good, too. It's, like, it's got a lot going for it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love these comics. I think they're great. Um, it was really interesting hearing all of your reactions to it. Um, uh, I obviously recommended this, so, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, shout-outs. Uh, all right, so I'm Jeff Ellis. Um, you can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca. Uh, and I'm just going to shout out uh, the Imposter Podcast. Uh, it's made by Canada Land. You should listen to all the Canada Land podcasts, but particularly you should listen to the Imposter because they've spotlighted, I think, at least three Canadian cartoonists at this point. Cool. Um, I'm Jess Pollard, and you can read my webcomic Liquid Shell at liquidshell.tumblr.com. And I'd like to shout out a local comic book shop in Vancouver called Lucky's Comics, which is where I bought both volumes of Wendy. Yeah, Lucky's is, is one of the, one of the best. Mm -hmm. I'm Kay Gross, and you can find uh, my ongoing webcomic, Lunar Maladies, at lunarmaladies.com. I'm going to shout out the comic Softer, which is spelled S-O-F-T-R, by Jasmine Shewitt. Um, if you like 20-somethings, trying to figure it out in Vancouver. That's a fun one. Also, she drew my characters as Funko Pops in the background. I saw so. that. <laughs> <laughs> Go read that fun comic. Okay, uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton. Uh, you can find my work at phobos-comic.com. Uh, and I'm going to shout out Delilah Dirk and the King's Shilling by Tony Cliff. This is the second book in the Delilah Dirk series. They're both really good. I like them a lot. They're also both very different from each other, which is interesting oh. when you're talking about a uh, sequel. So, A+. Plus. It's good. Cool. Uh, my name is Jam. You can find my work at wasteoftalent.ca. Uh, I did two shout-outs last time, and I'm drawing a blank now, so pass. <laughs> you used up your shout-out. Uh, shout-out juice is gone. <laughs> shout-out shout to the juicero. That's your been shout, the most yeah. entertaining uh for the world of tech, if you want to talk about like disparate worlds where people have no ability to relate to, the hot trend is to drag on the Juicero machine in the world of tech. So just Google Juicero and get a lot of interesting hot takes on why it's a terrible product and a terrible idea for everyone. Okay. <laughs> That's the most entertaining thing on the internet this week. Um, what is our next book going to be? So the next book will be Last Man by Bastian Vives. Michael, San Laville, and Black. All right, and we're going to do a marathon. We're going to do like four books of that Ooh. in two episodes. <laughs> four books of fantasy martial arts. <laughs> Jess's first uh, double episode. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics, thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab, and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.